Welcome to Someone to Talk to, a podcast about faith and life with Jason Messman and Josh King. Jason and Josh have been friends for over six years, and for the past several years, they have gotten together almost every other week to discuss life, faith, marriage, church, parenting, etc., over a cup of coffee. During one of these fellowship meetings, Jason suggested recording the conversations and making them available as a podcast, and this podcast is a result of that suggestion. Well, hello there. Hey, good morning. How are you? I am wonderful. It's bright, almost sunshiny day. I've got coffee. Life is good. The birds are out these days. That's always a good sign. The birds are out. Crystal saw a robin yesterday. Nice. It's like the first... The first signs of spring. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Spring. I'm ready. Yeah, a lot. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even a bad winter. No. It was was definitely a relatively mild winter, but I agree. I'm ready. It's funny you mentioned that because, you know, like, social media like has its pros and cons and we could spend a whole episode talking about the cons, but one of the pros is when like a memory shows up mm-hmm. and it was four years ago that in our area, in the Spokane area, we had that crazy February where it snowed like the entire month and set every record of snowfall for that month. Right. And it, so this would have been March 4th or something, but the memory was from March four years ago and we're out riding bikes. And while the snow in the yard is melted, there are berms like waist high everywhere. It was, I forgot how much snow we had that That's year. That funny. was crazy. Last year, February was pretty crazy too. I think it's done that in the last couple of years. Yeah. Just kind of saved it all up for February. For February. And it on us. Yeah. But I can't complain. Nope. I love it. I love the snow. I try to get it in as, as, as much as I can. And then, but I am ready when it's, <laughs> when it's ready to go, I'm ready for when it to it's go. time to be gone. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, before we, this is your week to do your story. And I know, I know you said you may or may not do that. That's totally, totally up to you. The floor is basically yours this week. Um, before we get started, I wanted to touch on something really quick. However, before we get going, um, last year when I, last year, last week, last episode. It felt like I, last year. <laughs> it totally felt like last year. Last year, I probably was last year. Um, last episode when I shared my story, yes. I really I really glazed over the bad stuff. Like I kind of threw it in at the beginning and then I talked for an hour about like life since then. Right. Um, and I did that on purpose, but I don't in any way, shape, or form want to belittle that period in my life. Right. Um, I don't want to like take away from that. I don't want to, I don't want to like emotionally glaze over it. Um, I recognize the depth of my sin and the impact that it's had here on earth and the impact that it's had on the people that it touched. Right. Um, but I really wanted to focus on the but God portion. Right. That part where God steps in and everything changes, which is the reason that I did that. Um, I really, really wanted to stress the reality that no matter how far you've gone or what you've done or how badly you think you've sinned, that you're not too far gone, that there's not a place where God can't reach you. Um, I know that there are a lot of people out there who have stories that are Right, similar to mine, have done things similar to what I've done to, 
you know, things that you've done that you may or may not share this morning. Um, we have a tendency as humans to think that our stories and our lives are uh, individualistic and they're ours and nobody else will ever get it or understand or know what it's like to be in our skin. And that's just not true. Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is all of our stories are very, very similar. Um, it is amazing. Once you really start talking about your stuff, mm -hmm. the number of people that can, that can by show of hands be like, I have that stuff too. Um, I don't carry the guilt and the shame associated with my sin anymore. And that's Jesus, right? That's the part that I really wanted to focus on last time when I shared my story last time. Um, and that's the reason that I kind of glazed over the bad stuff. Um, not because I was trying to make light of it or belittle it in any way, shape or form, right? It was ugly. Um, it was a very ugly period in my life and I don't want to take away from that. But at the same time, I feel like the other side of that coin is so much more worth conversation. Mm -hmm. And if we're setting out to um, inspire people in some way, shape or form, then that's definitely not the portion of the story that I want to focus and spend my time and attention on. Um, so that's just the reason that I did that, right? I really wanted to focus on the, but God, I don't care where you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done, but God and can make it all better. I, uh, it's funny you say that because, um, when I first, I, I don't know if you can say I came back to church, but when I first really started taking my, my relationship with God, seriously, I guess I'll say that. And when I really had come to terms with what accepting Jesus as my personal savior, um, looks like I was really, I mean, like you, I was really open about the things I'd done in my past. And one of the things that I was most open about was that I, for like, I, and I can't like, this makes it sound so much more glamorous than it was, but for like a summer, a brief summer while at college, I sold drugs. And that's really, that's not, it's like I sold pot and I probably sold two ounces of it, maybe total. Um, and I've never shied away from that. Like, whatever. I smoked a lot of pot. Selling it was like the next logical step to, to smoking it for free. So when I first started embracing my faith and being more active in the church, leaders in our church knew that and would introduce me to people intentionally who had struggled with that or had been down that path because they were just trying to make the, it was, you know, I think on one hand you could feel like, Oh, they're, they're showcasing you and they're like parading you around and look at the center and how great it is that we saved him. But I, that wasn't it at all. What it really was, was they were trying to connect me with people to show them exactly what you were just saying. It's that like, honestly, Jesus doesn't care about what you've done um, because you have to think of it like, we are his own children. We are God's children. And when we come back and there's a whole story in the Bible, if you're new to this whole thing, if you're listening to us because you're friends with us or you've just stumbled across this podcast, but if you don't know anything about Christianity, there is a parable in the Bible that Jesus tells. It's the prodigal son. You can look it up. But essentially a son leaves, comes back and his, was up to no good, You know, took half his inheritance and blew it. And when he comes home, his dad doesn't care. He just runs out to him. 
And there's a whole bunch of cultural significance in that story that we've just completely brushed over. But the idea being that like when your kids come home, it doesn't matter what they've been up to, they've come home. And that's the way God views each and every one of us when we accept Jesus as our savior. He views it as we are coming home. And the thing also too, that you just said about, but God, and then everything got better. I've always looked at it from this perspective. My life hasn't gotten easier since I've accepted Jesus. I just have a different outlook and perspective, a different way of interacting with people. And I'm not perfect at all by any stretch. Uh, we've, we've told stories in this podcast about how we've gotten it wrong and continue to get it wrong. I continue to make mistakes with my kids and my wife. But because of God, there's that drive to not only try to be better, but to be better to people and to do better. And to, and there's a hope that you just can't erase that while things may not be better in this life, they certainly will be better in the next life. So I appreciate you sharing that. I thought that was cool. Um, <laughs> I didn't think you glossed over the bad stuff. I thought you kind of dug into some oh, of it. You give dude, us I could, gritty, but I, I could go on for a day, I think, <laughs> on the places I've been. Oh. Um, and and you're right, right? Better doesn't mean we've mentioned this before, right? Better's not Jesus isn't a cure-all. No. There are, and he can be. Jesus can absolutely step into your life and take things away from you that you have struggled with forever and ever and ever. That doesn't mean that he's going to. Right. Um, it doesn't it mean that it, it doesn't mean that it works that way for everybody. But what I can say is that my life is infinitely better today with Jesus than it was before Jesus. And that's even during the hard stuff. Yeah. Like when I struggle today, when I go through hard times, um, right even the struggles are better than they were pre Jesus. Right. So when I say my life is better, I don't mean right. Rainbows and unicorns. I mean, everything that I deal with today, good or bad is infinitely better than everything that I dealt with yesterday. Good or bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, I know we've, we've spent like three episodes just pooping on America, the church in America. And I think we've said it, but if we have it, I want to make something extremely clear. If there's one thing that the church in America has done fairly well, it's be a place, I, a lot of churches and not everyone, they're not all created equally, but there's a lot of churches out there that are doing a fantastic job of reaching people like you and me. Um, where we were being a place that's open, being a place that's welcoming. And, and um, you know, C.S. Lewis said it, that, um, if, if church is doing its job right, it should be filled with the worst people because that's who Jesus was trying to reach. Um, I think after you come to know Jesus, I think you should be one of the nicest people anybody who knows you knows, right? And I struggle with that. I'm certainly not the nicest person <laughs> anybody knows. But that's my quest, I think. That's my, my journey. I want to be that person. Uh, okay. Well, you teed it up. You said, today's my story, and I'll probably tell it, but there's something that's just like really been on, I don't know if you want to say on my heart, but like really on my brain. Um, I made a, a quiet goal this year to try to not read books. I read a lot. Um, and by a lot, I just, I mean more than I used to. I don't read a lot by like other people. I have a client right now 
I think she said she reads something like 40 books a year. It's crazy. Um, I'll read 15 this year if I'm lucky. So like, that's a lot for me. I try to read every day. I have an old high school buddy who reads hundreds of books a year. Yeah. Uh, and I don't read. So I think, and I just, so on that note, I've, I, for the last few years, I, I used to read a ton of fiction. Uh, I was a big Robert Ludlum fan. I even read James Patterson. Um, so I'd read a lot of fiction and I just got to this point where I think it was early on when I, um, was going, started going to church more, m- more regularly. Ugh, I struggle with that regularly, man. I can't get that one out to save my <laughs> life. When I started going to church on a more regular basis, um, I just found this place where I was like, ah, fiction doesn't really like, I, it's not improving my life. It felt like I was watching TV. You said you talked about watching games, game of Thrones. It just felt uh-huh. like that to me. Like all of a sudden I was like, this isn't adding a whole lot of value. And that's not to poop on any. If you're reading fiction, read fiction. Like, I don't care. Jesus, I don't think cares. He'll he'll deal with that if that's your thing. It was just the thing he was dealing with with me. So I started digging into a bunch of nonfiction, a bunch of stuff to try to get better at being a parent. Read a ton of parenting books. I've read a ton of marriage books um, uh, and a, a bunch of co-parenting books. My oldest son is not mine from my current marriage. Um, so I... I haven't read a lot of fiction. I, that said, I have started reading The Lord of the Rings because I've never read it. And I read a bunch. I read everything John Eldridge puts out and he references The Lord of the Rings all the time. He loves those. Lord books. of the Rings is a Jesus story. It's not fiction. Yeah. It doesn't and, count. And it's incre- It's really good. I'll probably read it every year. I just finished uh, Fellowship. I'm on the Two Towers. I will probably read it every year, if not every other year. Really? Like, yeah, it's that good. And it's there's just so much to it, I think, is the other thing. There's just so much richness. There's so many places that are referenced and, and, and characters. And it's really hard at first read to get them all straight. Like, I felt like having, like, a whiteboard with a flowchart. <laughs> and they, they have these maps. And I'm reading, like, the paperback one. So these maps are in there. And I'm like, I need a magnifying glass because I'm trying to go. It's like, where's Rohan? Where's Gondor? I don't really That's understand. funny. So anyway. That's awesome. One of the books, so I, I made a, a quiet goal this year to to not to try to get away from reading stuff from white dudes because I f- realized that I've read almost exclusively white dude books. And that's a perspective that's too readily available in America. And it doesn't help me understand anyone else's, you know, position. It doesn't help me empathize very well with other people. And there's this book that's been making the rounds um, on on social media. On I mean, I think it, I, Oprah said it was the most important book she's ever read. And then we bought a bunch of books for Christmas for people. We bought Bob Goff books for all the adults in our, we bought uh, both all three Bobs and then Maria's Sweet. book. Um, so we bought four books for most of the adults in our lives. So like my, my parents, my in-laws, my brother and sister-in-law and then my brothers um we bought books and then um and then my dad so um these books as we're buying these books uh downtown shout out to auntie's bookstore locally owned bookstore Ooh. and they can order stuff dude if you're like hey i can only get it on amazon no you can't uh walk into a local bookstore they'll order it for you but they have this book called cast like prominently displayed. And this is the book that I've been hearing about. It's the book that Oprah said was the most important book she's ever read. It's written by a woman named Isabella Wilkerson and Wilkinson. Oh shoot. Now I'm gonna have to look it up. Cause I, if I totally, if I get it wrong, I'm going to just, I'm never gonna, it's like terrible. It's like, did he even read it? Um, well, you didn't cause you said you hadn't read it yet. 
Wilkerson. No, I just got done. I finished it today. Oh, okay. Um, so her book cast is about America and how what face it's not really a book on racism, but it's more about how our system in America is really a caste system. So think like India. Ah, gotcha. Um, with uh, African Americans or black people in general being at or near the bottom caste. Uh, she does talk about indigenous peoples as being a separate caste. And then uh, she compares it to, this is what, this is what really hit me. She compares our caste system, not only to India, but to Nazi Germany. And she, in her research found, and this is all, this has been, there's the transcripts of this. There was a meeting of these German officials within the third Reich who were trying to figure out what to do with their Jewish population. And in that meeting, they referenced how we had treated African-Americans in our country as their template for what to do. So I don't know where you land, and, and I don't mean you, Jason, but people listening, I don't know where you land on how you feel you're a racist and if it's a pendulum, where you think you swing to. But you have to recognize that if our country was the template for Nazi Germany to figure out how to handle the Jews, probably not a good thing. And for anybody out there who's, who's trying to figure out, like if you've struggled with race, if you've struggled, like I'm not a racist, if you, any, you have to pick up this book and read it. I tend to stay out of the political fray on social media. I tend to stay out of the you know, you should be a better person, Frey. I do post a lot about scripture. I post almost every Andy Stanley sermon because he just, dude, hits home runs like nobody's business. But this will probably be a book that I post about on Facebook and lose friends over, and I can live with that. It is so, every morning I would be reading it, and when my wife Natalie would wake up, I would have something, I'd have to go, you have to hear this. It's so we just if you're white in this country you just you have no idea and i, I just it, it's impacted me in such a way i i don't know what the result is yet but there i'm going to be making some significant changes and i again i don't know what those are yet but i have to credit isabel and that book and then i have to just take a minute and go to every person who suffered under our caste system in this country like uh, we just don't deserve how easy our lives have been in comparison if that makes any sense um it makes great sense and i, I haven't read the book so i'm not going to comment on it um <laughs> and maybe i should withhold this comment until after i do but number one history is ugly and i don't care whose history it is i don't care if it's our personal history our country's history yeah um the global history history is ugly mm -hmm. right it bothers me i am currently bothered by the idea of right erasing and canceling everything that has ever happened if it doesn't fit the the current agenda or because it was ugly yes history is ugly yes we as people did bad things yes the church history is ugly. Uh -huh. History is ugly. Um, but we have to confront those things. We have to look at those things in the face and say, okay, this was horrible. 
how can we do better as a people and move forward together? Mm-hmm. Um, right. I don't think the idea is tearing down statues and right. Getting so, rid of things and, and all of that in order to try to make things better. Cause we're not making things better. We're just trying to forget that we did anything bad to begin with. And that doesn't make anything any different or any better. Right. In fact, it takes away a really good example of what not to do. Right. Um, and kind of prohibits us from being able to move forward in a positive direction. Uh, I was going to say something else and I don't remember. Oh, we, I think we have to keep in mind that as you do that, as you kind of evaluate that caste system and what it looks like in this country, I think it goes way deeper than color, right? We have a caste system that involves um, the 1% and middle incomers. We have caste systems that include poor people. We have caste systems that include uh, the homeless. We have caste systems. We have, we have, I, I haven't read the book, but I absolutely and totally agree that without it being labeled as such, there's definitely a caste system in this country. She, she, and she goes on to talk about um, specifically women within the caste system and all that. It's a powerful book. And to the point of statues, do you know how many statues there are to Hitler in Germany? Do not know. I'm kind of hoping it's zero. Yeah. So anybody who wants to talk about statues to, to Southern generals, there's what they've done in Germany is a few things. One of the things that I thought was the coolest was every building where a Jewish family or person lived and that person was taken out of their home and taken to uh, camps like Auschwitz or, or other um, camps, they've put a plaque on those buildings indicating who they were, when they were taken and where they were taken to. And I might be getting that 100% wrong, but I know that the plaques are there and they're on the building. So you, everywhere you go, there's a memorial in, in Germany to the people who were taken. And then in, in the city, I think that served as the Third Reich capital, there's a memorial designed to um, uh, commemorate the people who died, all the Jewish citizens who were killed in the Third Reich in, the, in, in Nazi Germany. And... Um, I'm going to get this all wrong, but it's designed as like a, it's in the middle of the city and you walk in and it's, there's something like 2,144 cement casket looking things. And they're done in this, like in this geometrical design. And as you walk into it, you actually go down and it's in a depression. And so once you're in the center, you look back and it's, um, and it's very, I guess, imposing and, and really, really quiet in there. And it was designed intentionally by the architect to be sort of unsettling. And it's all about commemorating the, the people who died. And, and so anybody in, in America who wants to talk about erasing history, I'm not saying, you know, taking down a statue we're, no one's saying we want to erase history. What we are saying is maybe the history that we take down, that we leave, maybe the history that we celebrate shouldn't be the people who actively promoted treason for the right to keep people enslaved. There is, Robert E. Lee is the general of the Confederate Army. There is even a creek in Idaho named after him. Why is that a thing? There are roads and middle schools and elementary schools all the way across this country in California and not just in the South. There's no Hitler 
elementary school in Germany. And that's no one's talking. What we've done in this country is not erase it. We've whitewashed it to make people feel better. And so in this, in this book, she's telling the story of this memorial that I just described. And she's being told this by this historian. And this historian living in Germany has a friend. And then Fred said, I don't like that memorial. Why didn't they just make it a beautiful park? Because when I drive by it, it makes me feel guilty. And the guy says, if you feel guilty, then you're guilty. I just can't underestimate and, and under, overstate I, I can't overstate how important reading books like this is, I think, especially if you're white and in this country. Um, I, I just had no idea. I mean, I thought I knew. I had no idea. There's history in there that we aren't taught. There's information in there that we don't know. There's, it, it's unbelievable. I, I, don't, I didn't know this either, but towards the end of his life and the end of his career, Albert Einstein was a huge advocate for civil rights because as a Jewish person, he came to this country and as an outsider could immediately see what we had done to African Americans. And he dedicated a, a significant portion of his life to being an advocate for that. It's, it's outstanding. So that's what I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about because if, if anybody's listening to this, I'm not trying to soapbox you. I'm not trying to like make anybody feel bad, but this book wrecked me and uh if you have a chance to get your hands on it it's isabel wilkerson it's a book called cast it's phenomenal it really is and and eye-opening and i think as a christian and understanding where your faith comes from culturally this book's important uh okay i will put it on my must-read list yeah it's uh right. it's, i agree we don't i as a white suburban middle class american <laughs> who did have the benefit of growing up on military bases so mm -hmm. my contact has been expansive that doesn't mean that i know everything or get everything um and i believe that we can all use more perspective period you know, one of the things that my experience has led me to believe, especially when it comes to confronting things like caste and, and racism, is that there's really good people out there of, of all walks. But most specifically, there's really good white people out there who, 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 for whatever reason, make these weird decisions. And it's hard for us to understand. You're like, why would you do that? That, that decision, that, that action feels racist. It seems racist, right? I mean, whether it's who you voted for or how you behave or you know, instead of supporting Black Lives Matter, you say all lives matter or whatever. And what I've come to realize is that it's because regardless of what caste you're born into, what color your skin is, what income your parents were in. I mean, I grew up in a really poor white area, like super poor. And Every, what, what hap everybody's life is hard to some degree, right? Even if you had a silver spoon in your, your mouth when you were born, it doesn't mean you didn't experience tragedy. And I think what people struggle with is that caste, confronting caste, confronting racism, they feel like it's diminishing the difficulties in their life. And, and it's not. It's just saying that as difficult as your life was, if you had a different wrapping, it would be that much more difficult. Um. I think it's important to realize that, and, and cast didn't make me feel like my life was any less difficult or significant. It just made me feel like I, I don't have any understanding for 
what being in this country and being a different skin color, what it actually means. Right. Um, no, I absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about our, our individualism, our inability to see beyond our own problems. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a very individualistic culture. Yeah. Uh, it, it breeds individualism. It teaches individualism. And the truth of the matter is you're right. If I, if I give in to somebody else's, if I give credit to somebody else's struggle, I have to deny my own. And for some reason in America, that's really hard for us. It's really difficult for us to see beyond our own struggle mm-hmm. and truly honestly empathize with somebody else and their struggle without making ours, without the yeah, but, right? I, I totally understand where you're coming from and I feel you, but I had this thing, right? It's really hard for us to do that. It's, it's that um, even with people in our own, even with people in, even with our neighbors, I, even with our wives. I have a really difficult time having a conversation with my wife where she tries to express a struggle where I don't have to have a story that compares. Oh, Why man. can't I just get her? I, dude, uh, somebody, I mean, you know, Twitter, people give Twitter this like bad rap. And I'll tell you, there's, there has been a place that has been a place that has pushed me into more growth. It's, I mean, it's one of the first places where I heard, heard about Isabel's book. It's one of the, it's where I hear about all this stuff. And somebody tweeted that exact thing that, um, oftentimes, especially I think men, but oftentimes one of the ways that we try to show empathy is we hear a story, we hear somebody express what's going on in their life. And then to try to show them that we understand, we try to tell a similar story. Right. Instead of just saying, I hear you, I feel you, that stinks or that's awesome. And I do it all the time. And it, you know, honestly, I blame Jesus and we'll have a talk about it when I get there. Like he started it all. He tells a parable for everything. And it's like, I feel like that my brain gets that my brain understands that method. It's not Jesus fault. And it's listening to understand, not listening to speak. And I, and I literally in my book, I have a prayer journal. I don't have it with me. I have a prayer journal. Um, like you can see it. This is a podcast. I'm like reaching for it as if people right. listening can see me reach. I have a prayer, like a prayer journal thing that I used to write. And it's one, and we'll talk, we can talk about that more as, as this podcast goes on. But in there, because of one of the prayers I pray, I actively try to keep track of some of the things that I know that I'm struggling with, sin, if you will. And one of them literally is I listen to speak. I do not listen to understand. And I try so hard to change that. Um, okay. So I want to, I do, I, I guess I'll take the last few, few, few moments we have to talk a little bit about my story. And I don't, this kind of goes back to that whole, uh, if I were a stand-up comedian, this would be a different environment because that would be how I would, I'm paying the bills and everybody would know that. And then you would know if you come into my orbit or if I come into your orbit, you're potentially going to be fodder for, for my material. Uh, and I, so because of that, and then also just because I, I haven't specifically requested permission from some people to talk about it, I, I do have to be mildly candid uh, in my story, but I'll, I'll do a quick and dirty version of what growing up was like, and then I'll, I'll, I'll dig into more, you know, the decisions I made. So I, I'll focus less on, I think, you know, the things that happened in my life that made my life maybe more difficult. Uh, and then more into like how I made life more difficult for those around me. Cause I think that's more important. 
So I grew up on the other side of the state from Spokane, where I live now. I grew up in the Seattle area. I was born in downtown Seattle. Uh, my, my mom and dad at the time were married. I had a, a younger brother that was born 22 months after me. Uh, and I, I would say of all the struggles in, in my life, having a brother that close, and that's no one's fault. Like you can't plan that. Having a brother that is that close in age was a real challenge because we were almost always physically the same size and we looked alike. We were often confused for twins. And as an older brother, it's extremely difficult to establish caste and dominance when your younger brother's the exact same size as you and a lot more ornery. So uh, my parents divorced when I was about six or seven, which ultimately was one of the most difficult things. And it took me a long time to come to terms with that. My parents though managed it, I think with about as much grace as you can, but being a, a little kid and living through some of the, the, the consequences of that can be a challenge. Uh, my, I, I have very distinct memories. I have a, a memory of crying under a desk just uncontrollably in the wake of my parents' divorce, I have a very distinct memory of my dad had moved out and uh, got his own apartment. And so I was coming home from school one day or from playing outside and we had a split level house and I'm walking in the front door and I can see through the door up to the upstairs. It looked right into the kitchen that my dad was standing in the kitchen and that, that uncontrollable joy that my dad was home and he had moved back in only to move out again later. Uh, but that proved to be a really difficult time. Uh, parent, my mom handled dating really well, but that's always going to be a weird thing for kids to experience as their parents dating. And I don't care what age you are. And I don't care what the circumstances is, whether you, you lost a parent, uh, to you know, a parent died and, and the other parents just moving on, whether it's divorce, whether it's you had a single parent who just decides to start dating. All of it is tricky. But my mom managed that really well. And then when I was about 11, both parents had at that point got into relationships that they're both still in to this day. So my dad and my stepmom have been married now for, uh, well, they got married when I was 16. So they've been married for 22 years, but they were married a lot longer, or, I mean, together a lot longer than that. My mom uh, was married when I was about 10, is that, or maybe nine. And then my, my youngest brother was born when I was 10. So, you know, my, my mom and stepdad have been married for 28 years. So they both ended up in, in really long-term significant, significant relationships. Um, growing up in the Seattle area was kind of an interesting thing. It was definitely a lot more diverse than the area I ended up in, which was great. It was a good experience. And then when I was 11, my parents decided to buy an RV park with my grandparents in Eastern Washington. And if we had a whole episode to talk about that alone, um, you like the, the, the resorts that didn't make the list are, if you drive from Seattle to Spokane, you'll more than likely take I-90. There are other ways to go, but you'll take Interstate 90. And as you start getting closer to Spokane, the middle, but a lot of people don't understand about our state. And I ha this happens all the time. I don't know if this happens to you, Jason, Jason, is they know Seattle. So they understand that Seattle's on the coast or on the, the sound. They understand that Seattle's on the west side. They understand basically where Seattle is. So when you say Spokane, a lot of people recognize that's in, in, in Washington. We have Gonzaga and their basketball team. A lot of other things about this area have made it kind of well known but they all tend to in their brain think it must be close to Seattle and Seattle is wet and green and beautiful and lush. 
as you drive towards Spokane, which is on the exact opposite side of the state, you go through a desert. We have four of the five climate zones or whatever it is. We have uh, plains, we have forest and mountains, we have a desert, we have, there is a rainforest in our state. The only thing we don't have is tundra, which I remember that from growing up. So as you drive through the middle of the state, it's all barren and desert and it's awful. I hate the part once you hit like Ritzville to Ellensburg. It's, this is the worst it, drive yeah. ever. It's, oh. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's parts of it called the Badlands or the Scablands. So it's not, I mean, if that scabs That's are not funny. awesome. Um, we, yeah. We might as well be on the moon right? as far as <laughs> right comparison between here and the West side. Uh, so as you get closer to Spokane, there's this town called Sprague and there's a lake there in a little town and it's still this scrub brush land. It's, you start to get into some dry, dry land farming. So there's a lot of wheat and stuff around, but it's still very deserty. There's, you know, there's, um, it's some of it's rocky, there's tumbleweeds. It's very interesting. And there's a resort that's been for sale probably for since my parents looked at it and you drive by, it's right off the freeway. It's on this lake. There's a railroad running right through the property and a train. And that's one of the ones they didn't choose. And you go, okay, so the one that my parents did choose must be awesome. And and I can assure you um, it turned out awesome, but it was definitely different when we bought it. So it's on this little lake called Waits Lake, just outside of the town of Valley, which no one's ever heard of. And in our area, they tend to think that means Spokane Valley, which is a city but it's more closely found uh, on the map to Chewila or Springdale, Washington, all of which is in Stevens County. And uh, so I moved from being like delivery everything, like delivery pizza, cable TV, to delivery nothing. To Chewila. To Chewila, no cable, no satellite. And it's like, oh, that sounds rough. That's not, what, that's not my point. My point, I'm just trying to describe the differences between the two. I could walk to school where I went uh, when I was on the other side. We, we were in a little town called Covington, a suburb of this, you know, Seattle area outside of Auburn and Kent. And so walk to school, you know, cul-de-sacs, green belts, that whole thing. I grew up on a road that was paved that ended on our area was dirt. And I had a 45 minute to an hour bus ride to and from school. I was catching the bus oftentimes before seven in the morning and I wasn't getting home until after four. Everything was a half hour plus drive. So you want to go to the grocery store, you want to go out to eat. Everything's at least 30 minutes away out in the sticks. There was no kids that lived on my street and because it was mostly vacation homes and very few people that even lived on the lake. So it was quite a bit different. Moved in the middle of fifth grade. My, uh, I always used to joke, my dad, uh, my parents are divorced and my dad, we would spend Christmas break with them. I, it was, we had a different arrangement. My parents always ended up living on opposite sides of the state from one another. So I uh, would spend all of like a good chunk of Christmas break, all of spring break, and then most of the summer with my dad. And that was kind of it. And we'd see him maybe a weekend here or there throughout the year. But I mean, I would go months at a time without seeing my dad. And he would do, I called it guilt Christmas, where he would, you know, overdo Christmas, I think, as a way to try to make up for stuff. And we, that, the year we moved to, to Chuila area, we, parkas were a big thing. And we, my brother and I, he was into the Cowboys and I was into the 49ers. We were not Seahawks fans because they were terrible during this time. And we both had been given these brand new parkas these pull i could google it and find it for you because you would know exactly what i'm talking about these pullover nfl parkas 
we showed up to school right after Christmas break with these things on. And we were going to school with kids who barely had a pair of shoes to wear. They starter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a starter jacket. And so we were immediately labeled as rich. Once they found out that my parents owned the RV park or one of them, there's three, there was three at one time on Waits Lake. Once they found out they owned that, they immediately assumed we were rich. I was, uh, I was never, it was never now like a fight, like a fist fight but I was bullied r- almost relentlessly. Uh, one story I remember, there was a, a kid I was friends with immediately took to me. He was like, we were really good friends. He came over to my house. We, we stayed the night. We had sleepovers. I had a sleepover at his house. And then one day him and another kid are just, they're just picking on me and they end up doing a game of keep away with me. And like a game I didn't ask to play. Like just, I found myself in the middle of a game of keep away and I remember pulling him aside and going, dude, I thought we were friends. And he goes, oh, no, you were just new and I was being nice. Oh, okay. So Ouch. this was in, this was in a school in Valley, Washington. And that at the time, that little school district only went K through eight. And so at eighth grade, you had the choice to go either to Springdale and go to high school there or go to, to high school in Chewila. But if you wanted to, you could also go to middle school or elementary school in either of those two places. So in Chuila, sixth grade started middle school. And so I made the decision to switch. Uh, I told my mom after that incident, there's no way I'm going back to that school. You can't make me. And so I made the switch to Chuila for sixth grade and showed up and a bunch of the kids from Valley all decided to go to Chuila too. So it was like, couldn't even get away from it. Uh, I was not a big kid. Still am not. Wasn't tall. Wasn't super athletic. Uh, I played sports through middle school, but I, I wasn't super terribly athletic. My sport has always been on the mountain or on the water. So I can wakeboard, snowboard, ski, all that stuff. But I just was not like, I didn't come into my own physically till much later in life. So I, I didn't, I couldn't find fit in there. And, and I'd already started playing an instrument before we moved uh, on the West side music programs start as early as fourth grade. And I picked the coolest of all instruments, the viola. Uh, so I came to the other side playing viola. They didn't have strings. They didn't, uh, Valley didn't even have a music program. So I was taking private lessons to start. And when I got to Chuila in seventh grade, band starts, not strings, just band. And I picked up the trombone. So from that moment on, I became a band kid. It was sort of like, like if you made the decision to embarrass, like if you could pants yourself in the school in front of everybody, like band in Chuila was the equivalent of pantsing yourself. Like you've made a decision to be ostracized. And I found myself kind of being like the coolest band kid, uh, which is not saying a lot. <laughs> I have a lot, and you should know, uh, I'm not picking on band kids. I have a, a, a huge affection for, I, I went to band camp every year uh, through high school, through, through later part of middle school. I was in band all the way through. I even played a trombone a little bit in college. I was in one of the jazz bands for a little bit. Uh, music was an important part of my life. I even at one point wanted to be a band teacher. So I'm not picking on it. It's just the the social hierarchy in school. Band is not at the top of that, especially in a small town where sports. And then in the 90s, uh, skateboarding and smoking pot were like, you could be a jock and be up top, or you could be a skateboarder stoner and be up top. You, th- there wasn't a lot of room for band kids at the top of the hierarchy. Um, so anyway, so that, you know, did that. And then I immediately grad upon graduation, I wanted to get as far away as I could while staying in the state, uh, because I, I didn't want my parents have to worry about like out of state tuition or anything. So I applied only to two colleges. I applied to Washington state university only because 
they had a music program that I had kind of visited and I, and they had a pet band for their, uh, for the football team and basketball teams, obviously. And I was interested in that. I applied online in 1999. I applied online. Uh, so get that through your brain. All of you people think, you know, the internet. <laughs> and I, I remember I applied at a friend's house and then I applied to Western and I think Western Washington university. I think I applied with that, with a physical application. Uh, the funny story about that is uh, I got into Western, got my packet and immediately knew that was going. I went and did a tour of campuses. We, we chose Thanksgiving weekend. Some friends of mine, we convinced one of our parents, uh, a buddy of mine, Corey and his dad drove, I think four of us to Seattle and we went and visited UW and Western. Of course, no one's doing tours over Thanksgiving weekend. So we just went and walked around by ourselves but I fell in love with Western's camp. It was absolutely beautiful place in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, love it. And so I got my, my acceptance letter to, to Western and immediately said I was in a few months later, WSU sent me a letter saying that they, they knew I had applied. They knew I had applied online, but somehow my application didn't come through. Well, at the time, you know, I, I had applied, I was, I had enough accolades, but I said I played trombone and viola, and those are not the most popular instruments for people to play. And because of that, they were act, they were asking me to reapply, basically saying you'll get in if you reapply. And I had so I always thought that was funny, but I decided to go to Western, and Westerns where a lot of stuff really shifted for me. So I, I got out of my little cocoon and my shell and was around a bunch of people that didn't know anything about me. So I could kind of, you know, be, be, uh, it was a rebirth. And I think since we're telling our stories, it's important to know, I did grow up in and out of church. My mom, her faith is very important to her. You, you won't find her in church on many Sundays, but we did go to church growing up. We went to a church in, in Chihuahua. And the thing that really got me was we went to one of those churches where it seemed like structure was more important than scripture. And, uh, and, and it wasn't a very accessible church in, in terms of like being teen, you know, you know, 10 to 15 years old, it wasn't a place where you really wanted to be. And it so like most of them, right. And they didn't have a kid's program, really. They had, you know, Sunday school, but that was where you made like those felt picture things and, and, right. and, and spaghetti necklaces. All the macaroni pictures. Macaroni, yeah, and all that stuff. And oh. so, you know, skiing and snowboarding became a huge part of my life. I worked, my first job was teaching snowboarding. So when winter rolled around, we that was the last place we wanted to be. We wanted to be at the ski home. My stepdad in the off season of running an RV park, they shut down every year from like September to April. He started working at the ski hill and managed the rental shop. So that's where we wanted to be. So we immediately walked from church. That decision was made incredibly easy when it turned out that the pastor of our church was running around on his wife. And what was most surprising about that is, is they were very humble, homely looking people. And I don't mean to be like, that sounds more judgmental. I just mean like when you get this picture of like a pastor running around, you think like a, a really handsome dude who like had the admiration of his congregation and could have his pick of women to run around. And that's not the case at all. It was much more real than that. It affects us all, bro. Yeah. And yes, exactly. And I didn't know that. And it was really, and in fact, we went through marriage counseling years later. And part of the marriage counseling we went through, we were meeting with our mentor couple and they were asking questions about our faith. And I told this story and he goes, where do you land now? Like if the pastor of our church came out that he was, I said, my, my faith has nothing to do with my pastor anymore. And it's really hard to get young people or people new to faith to that place where their relationship with Jesus 
is their faith, not their relationship with their pastor. Right. So anyway, so that was really easy. So I got to college, like no faith, no Christianity. I was the kind of kid in college where I was like talking Christians out of their faith by asking about dinosaurs and evolution and, and all that stuff. And, and I, I just, if I even knew the names, I remember I was sitting out in the front of the uh, old main is the building big like lawn out in front. And I was sitting out there and there was these kids came up to us and they were trying to, you know, share their faith and witness to us. And I, I, in that conversation had them doubting everything they knew. And it was I, like, if I knew their names, I would, I would apologize so hard. I'm sure Jesus and I will have a conversation about that. I'm sure you will. And that just springboarded sort of my college career. I did a bunch of partying. I, I loved partying. I loved binge drinking. I binge drank with the best of them. I was having tons of, you know, premarital sex. Uh, to the point where I was in a sort of relationship with a person and she ended up pregnant. And um, I don't know where I came from at this moment, but I said to her, you know, you're pregnant, it's your choice. And she decided to keep it. And that's when my son Ethan was born. He was born three, two weeks after I turned 21. So incredibly young, not married. Uh, the good thing about that was I was sort of aimless. I'd had some, I was in the communications department. I was a comm major. And um, the year he was born was this weed. I had to take this course is comm 235, I think, if I remember correctly, and, or 245, something like that. And it was the weed out course. What it was is you had to get a certain grade in order to even apply to the comm department. Now, at this point, I'd taken a bunch of credits um, in, in communications, I was have active in the, in the, in the comm program. I was an instructor assistant for one of the courses. I was, I'd gotten to know one of the professors really well. It turned out, this is a weird story, but it turned out she had adopted my first cousin, uh, who was given up for adoption. Uh, so, I mean, I had really gotten into, yeah, it was, that's a fascinating story. Penny Britton, wonderful human. She was so amazing. Um, so I ended up uh, taking this weed out course and then my, my, my son was born in the middle of this. And the bad news was, is I ended up getting like a C plus in the class and you needed a B minus. And I wrote the professor and I, an email and I said, look, I, 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 I didn't say anything. I should have earlier. I said, but here's the situation. I had a son that was born. It's kind of an unexpected deal. And there's a lot to that whole story that I just, like I said, I just, it's not appropriate for me to tell. Um, but there was, I said, you know, this is the deal. I had this kid. I've worked really hard. I thought I could pass this class. It turns out I can't. Is there anything I could do? Is there extra credit or something that can help me get up over the... I wasn't asking for preferential treatment. I was asking to earn the grade, but I was trying to give... I had to miss a couple classes. I mean, I had a kid. And it was one of those classes too, where if you had more than three absences, you started getting points deducted. And I think right. I ended up with like four or five absences. So I was just like, can I make these days up? Can I do something? And he wrote back and said, there's nothing I can do. The grades are final, which was not true. So there's nothing I can do. The grades are final. And I hope you don't continue to use your son as an excuse for performing oh. poorly. Yeah. So at that point, I switched programs. I got into a, a department called Fairhaven, which is a kind of a design your own degree program, which was the best thing I ever did. I ended up designing a degree in video and audio production. Uh, but I ended up uh, through that process. Um, I, I, I party a lot. I was not a good human to my son's mom. Uh, we, neither of us were really good people. Not that that excuses it, but we were young. Uh, there was a lot of challenges. And just before he turned two, we broke up. 
And so he, he was having a, a two-year-old birthday party at my grandparents' place down in Issaquah, Washington. We didn't tell anybody. Uh, only our parents knew. Her parents were in town. My parents um, had come over too. We all went to this birthday party together. And then after that started my single parent journey. And so from about the age of uh, 24 to 26, and you could maybe say, you know, for all intents and purposes, probably 22 to 26, I was about the worst human you could ever meet uh, that was heavy into smoking pot. Uh, that was a part of the, during some of that time I was selling drugs. Uh, my brother had moved to Bellingham to live with me just before Ethan was born. We had, we we're smoking tons of pot and we decided to start buying ounces. Thought we were so clever about how we did it. We weren't, um, we, uh, Ethan was born. I still continue to smoke a little bit, but definitely continue to party. And then when I became a, when, when his mom and I broke up, definitely partied, um, but also was doing a, a fair, my fair share, uh, of, of raising, raising Ethan, uh, through a bunch of different circumstances. We both ended up moving back to this side of the state, uh, or to the side of the state. She's not originally from even Washington. Her family is, but she grew up abroad. Her dad was in oil. Uh, and so she grew up in all kinds of really incredible places. And so we ended up on this side of the state and that was really just before I met my wife was really where I was a terrible human. I was, um, lots of relationships, lots of girlfriends cheating on lots of girlfriends. I used to joke that I was a really good boyfriend. I just cheated a lot. Um, and thought that, and really was in digging into that lifestyle and, you know, going to, to bars and, and to clubs and partying. And, and then I got a job after college at uh, the local TV radio station or one of them, KXLY, started on the TV side and w worked in radio. And that's where I met my wife. And um, we started dating. And so this is how bad I was. I, there was a concert in town and I was kind of seeing this gal and she loved this band. It was a terrible band called Hinder. Like, ugh. And she wanted to go to the concert. And so what happened was Natalie, my wife, worked in the radio department or the, the department at the radio station that handled all of the uh, contests. And so they were always having, they always had tickets to like every show that came to town, they had tickets that they would give away on the air. And so the way I got to interact with her is I was working for the AM radio station that did Mariners games and all these other things. And we gave away tickets too, typically to Mariners games. So anytime I managed a giveaway, you had to give the paperwork to her so she could process it and make sure that people could get their tickets. So we ended up interacting. And so I ended up, and if there was a concert or something you wanted to go to, she was the person you would ask, are there any leftover tickets? Are there any extra tickets? So I started sweating her for these tickets to take this other girl to. And she's telling me the whole time, like, these tickets aren't going to be available. They're not going to be a thing. Don't, don't even bother. And I said, okay, but I kept trying. So finally I go up one day and she goes, look, they're gone. These tickets aren't a thing, but I do have tickets to this other show. Would you be interested in those? And it actually ended up being a bunch of bands that I wanted to see Hawthorne Heights, Plain White Tees, Reliant K, and then another band, I think. And I said, oh my gosh, I actually really like Hawthorne Heights. And I said, I would love to see that. And she goes, here's two tickets. And then I said, would you like to go with me? So I'm sweating her for tickets to take this other girl to. And then when she gives me tickets that I actually want, I ask her to go. Like, this is the human I am. 
So she says, no, you don't have to, you don't have to do that just because I gave you the tickets. I said, no, I'd really like to go with you. And she says, okay, yeah, I'll go. And I said, great. We'll make a dinner and a move or dinner and a date and everything. So I like rope a doped her. So that she is a up- fantastic story. Um, we are totally like out of I know. time. So and I'm going to, you should end this cliffhanger style. Part one. <laughs> part one. And we should pick up the, but God portion on the beginning of the oh. next recording i know so again you know like i said i i i i thank you all for hanging in there with me while i got a little bit on my soapbox and talked about stuff but i think as humans and as christ followers it's our mission to try to understand other people and and have empathy it's going to help us better serve them and serve god and then also thank you for listening to part one uh we might get to part two the next time we might not that's how we roll in this we'll get to part two eventually Okay. All right, buddy. Well, hey, um, one thing we haven't done, we have a few minutes left is we, we and you and I are so bare, bad to do this in reality, but I would like to pray for you and me and the people listening to this. And then we'll I think that's it. a wonderful idea. All right. So Father God, we just thank you for who you are and, and what you've meant to both me and Jason, and hopefully to those listening to this podcast, uh, the hope and the help that you've provided us and just how you've improved our lives. And I just ask that Jason and I will be obedient to you, that we will really try to live out your best for us, as will the people listening to this. And I also pray that for those of those listening that aren't following you yet, that they will open their hearts and open their minds to understanding who you are and, and understanding what being a Christ follower means beyond what you hear it means and beyond what you think it means, because it's so much more than what it's made out to be. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Until next time. All right, buddy. We'll see you soon.